Revelation chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Um, the message is titled, The Dead Church, Sardis. The first four churches of Revelation have given us a good picture of what churches can turn into through imperfect men that are over the church, being sinners like all others in the church. Uh, churches and individuals can be Ephesians who are loveless, Smyrnans who are suffering, Pergamons who are worldly or tyrants who are pagans. And this is consistently true of all seven churches, giving us an opportunity to examine our own lives now at this point. Now, the fifth church, Sardis, is a church that was um, not threatened by heresy, paganism, or immorality as its main problem, but a danger of self-deception by not depicting and depending on the Holy Spirit coming to a spiritual state of deadness. This is the heart of this church. Linsky, the Greek scholar, says, quote, Sardis suffered from spiritual dry rot and deadness. If you know anything about that dry rot, a beam looks nice. Then you go put your finger, you can go right through it. It's decayed. It has no substance. It's gone. Rotted. Oh, how easy it is to become deceived thinking that we are depending on the Holy Spirit when, in fact, we are not as a church or as individuals. How easy it is and deceptive to um, simply writing on the accomplishments of the past and the momentum, thinking that the present is really the result of the present. And it's still going on only to see one day that it comes to a screeching halt and it collapses. That doesn't happen overnight. It's progressive and it's slow, but it does come to an end. And many churches are, are like that throughout history in our nation in the present day. Once again, the message, as we have said, are applicable for all times uh, to all who hear and not merely the churches in um, the day of John. The seven churches, again, are messages. Uh, the seven churches represent uh, the four things consistently, a local church in John's day, a period of church history, as we'll point out, the type of congregation that can exist uh, from the uh, Pentecost to the rapture, and the type of Christian, uh, an individual relationship with Jesus Christ. And the pattern, as we've seen, is seen throughout with the exception of two. You have the proclamation, the commendation, the condemnation, the exhortation, and the application in We've seen this consistently. Uh, let me read our text, and then we'll get into the historical background so we can better see that the words that are chosen are fitted for this church. In chapter 3 here, verse 1 through 6, it says, And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know the hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed 
in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angel. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Historical background, again, helps us in the words that are chosen for this church. Remember chapter 1. These seven churches are churches of Jesus Christ. They begin as literal churches, real churches, real Christians. The city of Sardis uh, was situated about uh, 30 miles uh, southeast of Thyatira and about 50 miles due east of Smyrna. Again, a little horseshoe, circular motion right there in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Um, the wealth of the city was gold and silver attracted from, extracted from the sands of the river uh, Pactolus. And the location of the city commanded a trade route of the Aegean Islands and the military roads through uh, the province was important because uh, uh, the, the, the danger of, of people stealing and assaulting. So whenever you have wealth and everything, you're going to have some kind of military protection right there in Hermas, the river, river valley. Uh, and such was the case. The city had a dye industry, jewelry, and noted for its um, carpet industry. But all of its luxuries uh, and its living for luxury led to moral decadence. This is the natural, ladies and gentlemen. Riches and wealth and luxury lead us to decadence. Doesn't mean it has to. Doesn't mean it does absolutely in every case. But majority, for the usual, this happens if we're not walking with God. It takes us away. The city was known as the first metropolis of Asia. And... um, the city was the oldest and most important city of Asia Minor until 549 B.C. It was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia, which began in 1200 B.C. Um, the city sat on a, a northern slope of Mount Timulus, overlooking the fertile valley of the river Punctulus, which served as a, a moat for protection, being known for its impregnable city that was built on the slopes with uh, its uh, Acropolis nearly um, perpendicular uh, in rock walls that arose from it, uh, 1,500 feet above the lower valley on every side except for the south. So from um, a strategic location and, and fortress, it, it seemed almost impregnable. The city was uh, burnt in 501 B.C. by the Ionians, and the city fell twice, the first by Cyrus, um, the great... Uh, of Persia in 546 B.C. and then in 216 B.C., uh, Antiochus the Great. In 334 B.C., the city surrounded uh, by Alexander the Great um, was taken. Twelve years later, it was uh, taken by Antigonus. So um, the words, again, as we look at them, they, they, though it was strong and, and it seemed to be impregnable, yet it did have its, its uh, moments of conquest. In 190 B.C., it was part of the Pergamum Empire. Later on, in A.D. 133, it formed part of the Roman province till A.D. 395. A.D. 17, an earthquake devastated the city greatly. It was rebuilt with the help of the Emperor Tiberius and completed in 26 A.D., but it struggled to remain 
uh, uh, regain its past glory and, and status. So once again, there came a point in time when she was great and then it was just downhill. You see this with Athens and Corinth, the way they go look at each other. You see this with nations. You see Britain used to say that the sun never set on her empire. Now she's reduced to one little island. We, the United States, used to be feared. Now we're made fun of. Okay? Things happen. But they don't happen overnight. It's a very slow progression. But it does happen. In the same year of 26 AD, Sardis uh, begged the Roman Senate to be granted permission to build a temple to Caesar, but they were denied and it was given to Smyrna. By the time the Roman period, Ramesses described it as, quote, a relic of the period of barbaric warfare, which lived rather on its ancient prestige rather than on its stability to present conditions. Once again, this is a very well known about this city and the church has to be identified with it of its boasting and depending on the past and not maintaining that current relationship. Later, the city was restored and continued until A.D. 1400, 1403, when the uh, Tartarus uh, Tamburlaine destroyed the entire area. Now, Sardis means escaping once, those who came out or a remnant. Now, the church of Sardis, we know nothing about it outside of this letter. Without doubt, again, Paul was responsible through his ministry at Ephesus, but again, we can't be certain, but without doubt, they had some influence. The name Sardis, again, is in the plural uh, here when it directs as Sardis, um, and it represents um, two towns, one on the plateau, the other in the valley. Um, the church of Sardis was spiritually dead, as we've pointed out, and representing the period of church history called as the Protestant Reformation. We're talking about 1500 to 1750 A.D., about 250 years. Some of those who escaped out of the pagan Roman church were Luther, Knox, Calvin, Tyndale, just to mention a few. Now, the religion of Sardis, um, the city had an acropolis of the Temple of Sibylle, equal in size to the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, which was its main worship comparable to the goddess Diana rising 800 feet above the north section of Sardis, but it was never finished. Sibylle was represented by a human, uh, uh, a half-human associated with a, a pair of lions, um, or a single lion having power to restore the dead. I find this unique and um, an oxymoron to her spiritual condition. Though she professed she had ability to restore the dead, Yes, she was dead herself. And it, it, it's kind of comical, the words that are chosen. Now, the city had um, a necropolis or a cemetery of a thousand hills named because of the hundreds of burial mounds that were visible um, on the skyline uh, some seven miles away from Sardis. Uh, God alone saw the spiritual deadness of Sardis. You and I can look alive to each other. You and I can look whatever the conclusion may be, but God alone knows my heart where I'm at. Now, sometimes we're pretty good. We can pull off a number, okay? We can go, we can say, we can do, but inside, we're not home. It's not there. And um, John wrote, 
when he wrote this letter, he was looking to the past glory and fame of this city. This is the danger of every church and every Christian as we'll see. I, I think of a Pasadena, uh, the gateway to the valley, pass out to pass. And, and, uh, and look at all the old churches, beautiful structures. At one time, this was a thriving Christian community. Now, those places are empty whatsoever, completely. This was the historical background to Sardis. Now, the words that are addressed to Sardis will be better understood now with this historical background. We begin with the proclamation in verse 1. The identity of the recipient of the letter, again, once again, is the angel of Sardis. And Angelos, again, is the messenger, the pastor, the one residing over the congregation. Ecclesia, the church. It means those called out of darkness by the grace of God. Uh, to be saved, appearing 19 times in uh, chapter 2 and 3, and only one other time in Revelation 22, 16. All of them are regarding the church in 2 and 3. The church is not in the tribulation. The word is not even found from 6 to 19, okay, at all. One more marking to demonstrate that. Now, notice the identity of the writer is Jesus Christ. In verse 1 still, the words of Jesus now, they are his, not John's. These things says, the chain of command is God. The Father, to the Son, to the angel, to John, and to us. Um, chapter 1, verse 1 gives that very clearly, as we've noted. Chapter 1, verse 3, the revelation was uh, one to be read. The blessings to the one who reads it. The uh, seven messages were to be given to every one of these churches, as well as the whole book. In chapter 1, verse 11. And in one nineteen, we have the threefold division. The things he saw, the glorified Christ in chapter 1. The things that are the church, 2 and 3. The things hereafter, 4 all the way to 19 to the end of the book, the tribulation period and the second coming of Jesus Christ. A threefold division, so that if you stay to that division, the book of Revelation makes perfect sense. Now, notice the identity is once again uh, fitting. Uh, our Lord uh, identifies himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. This goes back to chapter 1, verse 4. All the identity of Jesus goes back to that. Now, the reference is... Uh, not to the seven holy spirits of God, but um, the sevenfold office of the Holy Spirit, which is mentioned in Isaiah 11.2. It's the spirit of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, spirit of might, spirit of knowledge, spirit of fear of the Lord. And I think the last one is the reason why she's dead. She lost the fear of the Lord. You and I just lose the fear of God. You're gone. The one who gives life and directs life to the church today is the third person of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit. It's necessary that I leave. If I don't leave, he can't come. And he will abide with you forever in the church. It has nothing to do with eternal security. Jesus came for 33 and a half years, then he was leaving. The Holy Spirit will come and remain even through the tribulation period to save people. Is that clear? Context, context, context. Now notice the Lord also identified himself as the one who has the seven stars. Chapter 1, verse 16 and 20. Okay? The seven stars are held in his right hand. Here of Jesus referring that they are under his control and function under his power. At least they're supposed to be. But God doesn't force anybody to continue that that relationship, the seven stars were identified as the seven angels or the ministers of the churches who should always be dependent under the control of Jesus Christ 
in their ministries, chapter 1, verse 20 is very clear. Okay, so the interpretation is given for us. We're not filling in the blank here. Sardis was a remnant, the escaping ones from pagan Rome, the uh, Protestant Reformation. And the word tells us that no one can be enlightened apart from the Holy Spirit of God. And that is why the Lord here, uh, it's very significant as he is the one controlling um, those who are, are subject to him by free will, by their own volition, by the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit of God. Because the Holy Spirit of God is the one to be directing and guiding the church and, and being the, the one who is empowering and enabling. Having begun in the Spirit, uh, would they would have to depend on the same Spirit to complete that work. Uh, to be effective, to be productive, to be able to be enabled to do the things that God is directing and guiding. Paul the Apostle, you remember in Galatians 3.3, tells the Galatians, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? It's a rhetorical question when only one correct answer. No. You begin in the Spirit, you have to continue in the Spirit, and you have to end in the Spirit. Are we clear on that? If there's no possibility of not doing so, why even write the letters? Why make the questions? This was the proclamation to Sardis. Now notice, secondly, we're going to jump down to verse 4. The commendation. Most commentators do not see any commendation for Sardis, yet I think there is, but it's uh, to the individual uh, who had uh, been faithful. And uh, it's not... In the usual order here. Um, notice there were few names in Sardis who had not defiled their garments in verse 4. Again, note that the commendation is not to the church, but to the personal individual in the church of Sardis. So all of the, all the, uh, uh, the addresses to the individual. Okay, the church is dead. And they are identified as few. Underline that. Allegos. It means small, slight, a little, uh, that they were still alive. We get the word oligarchy. It's the government that which, which is directing us today under the Obama administration. Okay? We are a republic. That's how we began. A rule of law. A Senate, a Congress, uh, the three branches to separate the whole accountable. We went from a rule of law to a democracy, the worst form of government. And we went from a democracy to now an oligarchy. The rule of few over many. Twice we voted on heterosexual marriage. Twice it told us to go home and forget about it. You have the few over many. One Supreme Court judge, Robert, said that Obamacare falls under the Commerce Clause. Wow. One sweep of the pen. We're going to have another decision in June. Oligarchy. The next step is anarchy. It's already started. Anarchy. Study history. Now, they are the minority, notice. And yet, they were knowledgeable, by, they were known by Jesus. The majority in the scripture are always right. I mean, so always wrong. It's a minority that is right. And I'm talking about the people of God. You talk, look at the, at the flood, Noah. Noah and his eight in the family total. The rest were perished. Joshua, Caleb. Only two that entered the promised land. From two to three and a half million people. The only ones over the age of 20 years of age. 
the majority of God's people are always wrong. Study the scriptures. They're given emphasis, notice, by the phrase, even in Sardis. The phrase focuses on their personal commitment to the Lord. Even in the midst of the dead church, there were a few who were faithful that they had received and heard. The commitment was not dependent on the time, the pressure, or what was going on, but the power of the Spirit of God. Quit excusing yourself or your children. Well, you know, it's so much more difficult today. Just a minute. Your children have it worse than Daniel? How about Esther? How about the kids during World War II? Better be careful. Your ability to live the life of Christ depends on the power of the Spirit of God. You're yielding to it. Not the nation you're in. Not the time you're living. Not how bad you have it. But who is in you. Are we clear on that? And of excuses. They were the spiritual ones among the unspiritual. The humble among the proud. The alive among the dead. Nor the fact that they had not defiled their garments did not refer to their own righteousness, but to that of Christ. Uh, for our righteousness is filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6 says, a menstrual garment. I don't care where you were the most moral person in the world. You were headed for hell. You cannot use your morality to be saved. You use Jesus Christ to be saved. Are we clear on that? So, no boasting at all. No comparisons. The righteousness was that which had been imputed to them by grace and faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, Ephesians 2.8.9. We're saved by grace through faith that not of ourselves is a gift of God. Now, the allusion to the wool industry of Sardis cannot be missed here. Um, pagan worship cannot be approached uh, to their gods with soiled garments. If they had soiled garments, they couldn't approach their gods. Is this, is this a coincidence or what? Of course not. The righteousness to live day by day was the imparted righteousness of Jesus to abide and depend upon him. As John 15, 1-3 says, the vine and the branches. Let I cut you off, cast you in the fire. Simple. Herodotus, the Greek historian, said that the citizens of Sardis had a reputation for lax moral standards and open licentiousness. The lives of these few were changed being new creatures. All things pass away. Everything had become new. Second Corinthians 5.17. The few. Circle few. Putting off the old man. Putting on the new man. Colossians 3.8-14. As well as Ephesians. As we saw last week in our in-depth study. The scriptures notice are consistent in reminding us. That it will not be the majority that will enter heaven. He's talking to his church. Jesus. Words listen to him. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go and by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Matthew seven thirteen through 14. Jesus again told his disciples, Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke twelve thirty two. Little flock, not mega church. Okay? I'm going to show you the average church in the United States is as big as our first service. 55 to 70, 80 people. In spite of the mega churches. You make them straight across average, 55 to 75. And people say that 80% of Americans are Christian. What a joke. What, what kind of Christian are you talking about? No way. 
The few would be rewarded by Jesus. Notice. And they will walk with me. Jesus says. Walk speaks of fellowship with God. Walking speaks of oneness with God. Amos the prophet says. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos 3. 3. One rhetorical question. One rhetorical answer is correct. No. We agree with God. He does not agree with us. We agree with the scriptures. They would walk in white. Notice. Speaks of purity, righteousness, and heaven. You see it in Revelation 3.18, and other passages here. They were worthy to walk, notice, referring to the relationship to Jesus Christ, not their own. Referring to the dependency on Jesus Christ, and also their obedience to Jesus Christ, referring to their salvation by grace through faith. So grace through faith is not a contradiction to being obedient, being dependent, and continuing. Nor vice versa. Okay? The compliment. Love without doctrine is corrupted. That's why we insist on doctrine. To the emergent church, they don't want to talk about doctrine. That's why their love is corrupted. The word becomes corrupted. You must have a standard. You don't have a standard, that love is corrupted quickly. This was the um, commendation to Sardis. Now, Let's go back to verse 1, the middle portion. Now we come to the condemnation. Notice uh, Jesus knew what they had done and were doing in the press. And the word know again is Oida. Um, as the previous church's intellectual knowledge, I understood and it could be perceived. And uh, works as ergon uh, refers to that they were occupied in and they were undertaking. Jesus understands all these. He sees the things, okay? And many of them commendable. But if the heart's not right... It doesn't matter. And notice Jesus knew. They had a, a name that gave an appearance that they were alive. Their works had given them a reputation among the people of being Christians. A reputation is always in reference to the outward visible deeds and behavior that people can see, not inner character or motives. Character has to do with who you are inside. Reputation has to do with who you are outside. They had caught the eye of the people and had gained quite a reputable name, but the Lord was not buying it. For the Lord sees all things. He focuses on the motive of the heart. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, all things are open and naked with whom we have to do. Now their works were not good. In fact, they are mentioned for their condemnation because of the lack of heart. It's always a mistake to think that we are right with God when people compliment us. Oh, you're such a great person. Oh, really? We love that. Luke six twenty six says, Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. So did the fathers to the false prophets. Wow. They appeared to be alive regarding the things that God noticed. Their works were superficial evidence of being alive. Their piety gave sense of godliness. Their works were the right ones. Their church was considered Christian, but it was dying from within. This is where your life and mine begins to die if we don't continue with the Lord. From within. Not outside. Their appearance was deceptive and dangerous. She who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives, 1 Timothy 5, 6. That applies to both men and women. He just happens to use the woman as an example there. 
Now notice still in one, Jesus knew their real condition. They were dead. The Holy Spirit was not uh, given its rightful place. That is why Jesus uses the reference to the seven spirits of God. The Holy Spirit was not the one doing the work, but them. There are a lot of good works going on in the church today, but it's not by the Holy Spirit. A lot of people are into the social activism. In fact, our whole nation has come under the deceptiveness of social justice and entitlement. Pretty heavy as you look at the reality of our nation. The works were professional formalism with death orthodoxy, living by the past life and fame. It's uh, social justice goes with liberation theology. Follow the, follow the crumbs. Follow the trail of those in office today. The liberation theology. The one preoccupation of Sardis was with death by her um, impressive necropolis that could be seen seven miles away. And um, now became a reality for herself. She was dead as the church of Jesus Christ. Sardis is dead Protestantism, no better than pagan Rome in the eyes of Jesus. In fact, worse, for it is the most severe denunciation of all seven. Their breaking away was not as complete as it should have been. Luther came out, but not far enough, as we'll see. Again, the average church used to be 50 to 55, take it a little more, 70, 75. It's not huge across America. And then take the fact that the majority of those don't believe the word of God is inerrant, infallible, as I'll show you. They don't believe in the second coming. They believe we make mistakes, but we don't sin. So everything is very subjective today. This is our society today. No objective truth, but subjectivism, because you can't be judgmental, see? The political correct language castigates you for doing so. All church movements and denominations go through four stages. Calvary Chapel is no exception. You ready for it? It begins with a man. Then it goes to a movement. Then to a machine. Then a monument. That's death. Chuck died two years ago. Began right away. No different. This was a condemnation to Sardis. Notice... Next comes the exhortation. Verse 2 and 3. <clears throat> the church is encouraged to be watchful notice and strengthen the things that remain. But again, the church is in terms of individual because the church is dead. Five imperatives are pronounced. The word watchful means to be wakeful or sleepless. Literally to chase sleep and be constantly alert. The tense is the present. The implication being that the church was sleeping and drowning regarding the things of God and still remain, uh, but were ready to die, appearing 23 times in the New Testament. Let me give you some of them. In Matthew 26, 41, Jesus says, watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. And what I say, I say unto all, watch, Mark 13, 37. Watch you stand fast in the faith, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, 
but let us watch and be sober. First Thessalonians 5, 6. Be sober, vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is roaring about seeking whom he may devour, like a roaring lion. First Peter 5, 8. If these things are not possible, there's no potential. Why bother? Here you are. Your son has just got busted for drugs. Because he was with their, his friends. And you say, why in the world did you not leave when you got there if you knew that? Why? Why do you get on him? Because you know he had the potential, the capacity, and the knowledge to not be there. But he made the wrong decision. Are we clear on that? Let's not insult God, ladies and gentlemen. This is his church. The church was to pay heed to its serious condition. It was not awake or vigilant regarding the teaching of Scripture. Its mission and identity with Christ was going by wayside. Over and over again, the Scriptures we are exhorted as well as commanded to be watching. Listen to First Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious, watchful in your prayers. Notice next comes the word strengthen. It means to um, make stable, place firm, uh, to set fast. It's used of Jesus when he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem in Luke 9.51. It's used to be established in the present truth in Second Peter 1.2. The reason for the exhortation to Sardis to be awake and fixed firmly on these things that remain was that they were ready to die and he had not found their works perfect before God. Verse 2 is clear. This is a charge. You don't charge non-believers with this. Non-believers are dead. You charge your children with this. Unfaithfulness. These things that were ready to die are in the era's infinitive. To definitely lose the last spark, yet Jesus could revive them. Matthew twelve twenty. Jesus, the smoking flags, he will not step on, but he'll, he'll give life. What's the key? Repentance. Did I acknowledge my error? Where I'm at? Lord, forgive me. Get me on track. Get on track again. Simple. Their works were not perfect. Notice. The word means to fill up to the measure. Not for salvation, but regarding the quality or the standard of the gospel by living and loving relationship, having been saved. Their works were empty of love, faith, and spiritual life. Even as Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty two and 23. Not all truth was recovered in the Reformation. It was not a complete return to Scripture. Living and lying uh, and, and many, much hypocrisy and other things. So Luther came out, but not completely. And those that follow him, even less. And that's the problem. Now... Isaiah twenty nine thirteen says they draw near to me with their mouth but their and with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God's always answered with the heart. Don't rent your garments, rent your heart. Don't circumcise your sexual organ, but your heart. What is it that we don't understand? Sardis is like a sinking ship, ready to die. Therefore they are called to take prompt and strong measures. You go to City of Hope, they tell you you have cancer. Radical surgery is going to be recommended. You may lose a leg, an eye. But it will save the rest of the body. 
Are we clear on that? If this is not a reality, why bother writing the letter? Let me give you some facts of the Reformation. They're illuminating. October 31st, 1517, Luther lashed out with his 95 theses against Rome. He posted them on the University Church door of Wittenberg, as you know. Uh, this event then prompted Luther's 295 theses that um, a man called Tessel that I mentioned before who wanted to, went around selling indulgences and to build their cathedrals and, and he spoke about the minute that coin hits the bottom of the coffer uh, and you've uh, given that money as a Catholic, your loved one is released from purgatory. I'll quote some of his words as we move along. Tessel's sermons explain um, among other things, that he came with the authority of the Apostle Peter and Paul, uh, and of almost the most holy Pope, with power to restore to the church and sacraments all who had sinned. Now I'm quoting his words, and this is Catholic dogma. Listen, quote, I would not exchange my privilege, said he, with St. Peter in heaven, for I have saved more souls with my indulgences than he with his sermons. The very moment that the money clinks against the bottom of the chest, the soul escapes from purgatory and flies into heaven. Now, you want to be a Catholic? You want to defend the Catholic Church? You've picked the wrong church. From 1512 to 1517, Luther had been engaged briefly in teaching. And preaching, but the aspect of his life's works were um, destined to change radically. Luther's 95 Theses was the outcome of Luther's zeal for the pure gospel and teaching as he came to realize that they were saved by grace through faith through Galatians. Now, they had not long to wait, for in August 1518, Luther was uh, cited to appear at Rome within 60 days. And for three successive days, October 12th to the 14th in 1518, the reformer appealed at Augsburg before the Italian cardinal named Cahetan. This ecclesiastic declared that the Catholic Church is the bond slave of the Pope, end of quote. This is their theology. Luther gave two full reply. Listen carefully. First, the Holy Scripture is an authority superior to the Pope's. Whoa. Second, that faith in Christ alone for salvation is a necessary doctrine. Bottom line, that Luther lived is only God's grace, because they try to kill him all the time. It's just God's grace and protection. From 1520 to 1522, the battle raged furiously. And on June 15, 1520, Leo, uh, Pope Leo issued the bull, no pun intended, being thus... Influenced by Cardinal Cajetan and Dr. Ed, this document was a kind of running comment on the principal works of Luther. It contained 40 criticisms, and in these it condemned the Reformers' 95 teaching. He was reminded that he still had time to recant or return, burn his writings, and return to the Holy Mother Church. This is the appeal and the offer today to the Catholic Church. She is on a roll right now. To, God, to offer to you all wayward Protestants to come back to the real Mother Church. Interesting. Dr. Luther gathered together the professors and students of the universities and in the presence of the immense concourse of spectators and ranks and ages, courageously committed 
to the flames, the papal bull. And then he went on to write three books. Interesting. The faults of the Reformation were two. Luther sought approval of political leaders and became a state church in Germany. The Lutheran church, uh, whatever happened there is just an enigma. And it, because they didn't come out far enough, they endangered the relationship. Anytime a minister gets involved with politics, you contaminate it. Now, we should deal and speak about politics, but not get involved in politics, okay? We have rights to vote, right to petition. That's not being involved. That's being part of our nation thing, okay? But we don't become Republicans, Democrats. You be careful because there are charlatans out there to, to divide you as Christians, okay? I don't care whether you're black, whether you're brown, whether you're white, whether you're yellow, whether you're pink and blue, if there's such a person, okay? We are Christians. Our agreement is on the Bible, not our politics, Okay, but my belief in Christ should dictate what I agree with politics. Okay, the foundation is my belief in Christ. It will answer all my questions and who it is that I vote for and who it is that I stand behind. He didn't change all of the traditions of the teachings of Rome when he came out. Let me give you some. He failed to worship in spirit and in truth altogether, as, John, as Jesus told the woman of, of Samaria in John 4, 24. They mixed dogma still with, with, with scripture. Infant baptism uh, through sprinkling was still carried on. The rituals were held on to. Some elements of sacraments were carried over. They became the state churches, I said, in Germany. You kill it because you cannot legislate Christianity. You can't force somebody to become a Christian. Just like you can't force your wife to love you or your husband to love you. You cannot force your wife or husband to stay with you. It has to be a free will thing for it to be valuable and meaningful. Prophecies were ignored altogether, and that's where you really fell. First the foundation of Christ, then the second coming of Christ. So the reproof of Sardis or the Protestant Reformation is that they did not follow through the way they should have. Today the Lutheran Church in Germany is dead in Sweden, Denmark, Norway. They have a very small percentage of churchgoers. All are looking to the past. In the U.S. it's no different. The majority of denominations are liberal today. They're emergent. They don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture they believe you make mistakes, you don't sin. They don't believe in objective truth, but they dialogue. They entertain people. They organize people. They get involved in social justice rather than the scriptures and Christ being one in their hearts. They became denominations with ceremony and dead orthodoxy. Many people are guilty of this in our day. They use the word of God and they modify it. They contaminate it. They water it down. They make it pure religion for their own comfort. Others never truly give God full obedience in their lives. They don't get taught. And therefore, they can't make proper decisions, um, failing to be example of committed Christians of Christ. Now, notice the church is encouraged to remember how she had received and heard. Verse 3. She declares, or Jesus here declares, that she had received and heard the gospel of Christ. Her privilege was um, to have received the scriptures, which brought about great responsibility. She was to remember. 
uh, her personal responsibility have having heard the man that accountability uh, so remembering uh, Hebrews um, gives us two of the strongest warnings Hebrews 6 having fallen away it's impossible to renew them again to repentance chapter 10 verse 26 to 29 falling under the hands of the living God it's a horrible thing the book of Hebrews is written to Christians Hebrew Christians that now we're going back to the law and sacrifice it's not written to pagans don't tell, let anybody tell you that the book of Hebrews rebukes anybody who believes that a Christian cannot walk away. You have to throw out the book of Hebrews, let alone hundreds of scripture, but the whole book of Hebrews. Both of these are emphatic by the word how. They had no excuse for deviating or lack of their complete exit from the religious system of Rome. Notice the scriptures are full of exhortation and commands for the believer to remember and to meditate. Joshua 1.8. Meditate upon the word day and night. Be prosperous. Have good success. That's talking about spiritual, not financial. Peter puts it. And teaches, remember these things. We just talked about it in Ephesians. So when I leave, you're going to have it now in writing. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12 through 13. And we are to remember in Ephesians that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Never forget that. Ephesians 2.1. We were to remember our Creator in the days of our youth because He will hold us accountable. Ecclesiastes 12.1 We are to remember God's mercy in Psalm 106.7 We are to remember that He never leaves us nor forsakes us in Hebrews 13.5 We leave Him. He does not leave us. We are to remember that His promises and warnings are for us, the believer. Romans 11.22 Not the non-believer. You evangelize the non-believer. They're dead. They're dead. They can become alive. These people were alive and they're moving towards death. Is that clear? Real simple. Notice verse 3. The church is encouraged to hold fast and repent. They were to hold fast, which means to guard from laws of injury and present imperative here. A command in verse 8 and 10. Sardis is not holding to the things of Christ, but allowing them to slip away, if you will. They were to contend for the faith that once delivered to the saints, Jude 3 says. We are to hold fast the form of sound doctrine, 2 Timothy 1.13 says. We are to be soldiers in warfare, good warfare, 2 Timothy 2.4. Faithful soldiers. And we are to keep ourselves pure, 1 Timothy 5.22. And there are many, many other things. Now... Notice they were to, one word, repent, which means to change your mind. Their only hope lay in repentance, the change of mind that brings about a change of heart. The need to depend on the Holy Spirit, to illuminate, to convict, to make that work real. Sardis had no outward marks of blasphemy, notice, but rather gradual dying by letting the power of the Word and Holy Spirit slip away. You see it in marriages, you see it in children and parent relationship, you see it in business, you see it in pastors, you see it in churches, you see it all around us. Why? Because the world's made up of sinners. Selfish, self-centered, rebellious. If we judge ourselves, we won't be judged. First Corinthians eleven thirty one. We have an advocate for the defense, Jesus Christ the righteous, first John two one. God chastens and scourges those he loves. Hebrews 12, 6. You scourge and chasten and correct your children. 
not the neighbor's kids. Simple. Notice the Protestant movement has become a mere name in many instances. Majority of Protestant denominations and ministries and ministers do not believe in the virgin birth today. What are they doing calling themselves ministers? They don't believe in the infallibility of the word of God, but teach neo-orthodoxy, psychology, integrating every other movement like the emergent church movement. Fuller Seminary is a perfect example of that. School psychology and whatever makes you, tickles your fancy. And they'll give you a diploma for that. Many don't believe in the literal second coming, return of Jesus Christ. Wow. You have ungodly men behind the pulpits who have slowly corrupted themselves and are mere professionals. You have unsaved people teaching the children in adult classes. They're not even Christian. You have infidelity in the church by leaders. You have loyalty to man or church instead of the word of God and Christ. People are following men. Many churches are controlled by a board. And the pastor has nothing to say. He's an employee. Members within the church are qualified by their service because they're financially endowed. They're rich. They have good standing in the social community. And never are they asked to meet any spiritual qualification. The first thing we ask you is your spiritual qualification. I could care less what kind of car you drive. I could care less how much money you have. I don't even really care what clothes you wear. I don't care what color you are. My question to you is, are you Christian or are you born again? Do you love the Lord and are you growing? And is your heart right with God? That's the most important thing. Churches are run by programs and committees instead of the Holy Spirit. The purpose-driven church is perfect of Rick Warren. Everybody loves him. Everybody's after him. Do you know how many pastors visit his website to preach last week's sermon that he did over their pulpits? That's like me eating, throwing up, and then you eat that. Why would you do that as a pastor? Why would you do that? Shame on you. Wow. Notice he says, you have a name, but are dead, and I have not found your works perfect before God. Their trust is in a diploma from a seminary instead of God through the Holy Spirit to recognize their calling, their anointing, their enabling, and the necessary gifts. If God has not called you, anointed you, and sent you, you'll be a hurt to the people of God, and you'll run in vain. I have never sent anybody out. If people tell me they believe the Lord direct them, I'll pray for you. I don't send anybody out. If you go, you better make sure God sends you. If he doesn't call you, anoint you, and enable you and send you, you'll run in vain, and you're going to hurt the people. I'm not against education. Get all you can But get over it once you get it. And don't think it's because of that that you're going to be successful. Wow. Now you know why a lot of people don't come here. (laughs) How do we keep from um, falling into the same pit? Remain watchful, strengthening, holding fast, and repenting. 
pastors are to feed the flock of God. John 21, Jesus told Peter in the threefold restoration, feed my flock, feed my lamb, feed my sheep. The purpose of the church is to perfect the saint, not to evangelize the world. The purpose of the church is to perfect the saint, feed them, Ephesians 4, 12. They did not be tossed to and fro with every one of doctrine, growing in Christ. All pastors are under shepherds. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He will reward us when he comes back if we're faithful, if we do it out of love. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. All Christians are to grow in grace and knowledge, including the pastor. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Listen to Psalms 86, 11. <clears throat> Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. There's where I will get off. Once I lose the fear of God, anything goes. You lose the fear of God, you're dead. Look at three. The church is encouraged to pay heed to the warning of watching. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come as a thief. You as a parent tell your child, now, you remember what I told you? If you don't do it, right? The metaphor is used for both the rapture and the second coming. But clearly this is not his bride now. You have to be in Second Peter 3.10 and First Thessalonians 5.2. They would not know the hour he would come upon them suddenly for judgment as history reveals about the city. The imagery of a thief is very significant regarding Sardis. Twice the city was besieged by Cyrus, the Persian, and by Antiochus, the Great, as we mentioned. Though the city was built on a hill surrounded by cliffs and the sides were all by the river mold, real perpendicular, uh, a reward having been announced by Cyrus to whoever gained early entry into the Persian uh, into the city, a Persian soldier saw a Sardian soldier drop his helmet from the top. And it went down the path. And he carelessly went down to retrieve it, not looking to see if anybody was looking, giving way of entry to the city. When they went up there, guess what? The sentry was sleeping. Whoa. Coincidence with Jesus telling this church? I don't think so. The other time was after um, one year Antiochus besieged the city and a soldier named uh, Lagoras with a band of men climbed up the steep slopes, the cliff, and um, there was no guard there. So it went from sleeping to no guard at all. That's progression downward. One of uh, Dr. Butler's uh, recoveries is the marble throne of Bishop of Sardis, looking upon it, the message to Sardis recurred in mind. He says, quote, yonder among the mountains over um, hanging Sardis, there is a robber gang led by the notorious uh, Jackir Hela. Uh, his rules, he rules in the mountains. No government force can take him. <clears throat> again and again, he swoops down like an eagle out of the sky in one quarter of the region to another. From time uh, immemorial, these mountains have been the hunts of robbers. Very likely, it was when Revelation was written, I will come upon you as a thief, end of quote. So you have the words, the affiliation, the association, the history. 
This is to be passed to all generations so that we can be vigilant and receive these warnings. This was the exhortation to Sardis. At least it's only with the application 5 and 6. Look at 5. The, the declaration is an invitation with promise of what? Reward. The one to receive the reward is the overcomer. Underline that. In all the churches that we've seen. In the first three, it came after the call to hear to Tyra and Sardis. It is before. It is a timeless promise. It is one who abides in Jesus Christ, John 15, 1 through 6. It is our faith that overcomes the world, 1 John 5, 4 through 5. And the person who will reward is I, Jesus. He's the one. The Lord will do three things to the individual. Look at 5. First, the overcomer will be clothed with white garments. White speaks of God's righteousness, that every believer is justified in Jesus Christ by his blood. You see it in Revelation 4, 4, 6, 11, 7, 9, and many other passages. White, again, represents purity, spotless, a wedding dress, <clears throat> a wedding dress based on his righteousness, not ours. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Secondly, <clears throat> the, over, the overcomer's name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Mark that well. A double negative <clears throat> for positive emphasis. The book of life is found various times in the scriptures, as you know. Exodus thirty-two, thirty-two, Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-eight, Daniel twelve, one, Luke ten, twenty, Philippians four, three, and on on into the book of Revelation. The book of life is apparently the one where all the names who will be saved, the living and not the dead. The concept of being blotted out of the book of life has troubled some. Even because of predestination and free will. We're not going to get sidetracked. It's real simple what's being said here. Uh, though it's called litotis in the negative to assure a positive, it's a double negative to bring a positive warning. The allusion is to the wool industry at Sardis again regarding these citizens whose names were removed from a public list if they approached the gods with garments that were soiled, stained, or if they were convicted of a crime, this is very appropriate here. This is not something that's hypothetical. This was a fact regarding this city. Okay? The scripture tells us that God knows who are his. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands uh, this, having this seal, that the Lord knows whose are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Second Timothy 2.19. You say, how do I know I'm his? You depart from iniquity. Simple. The problem is with our human reasoning and understanding with the statement about the book of life. Because we see some backslidden people, we see some walk away, but God knows who is going to stick it out to the end. So why, why should it worry you? We're not to question whether they were really born again or not. We're to call, call, call them to repent. That's what we're to do. That's the most important thing. The book of life is for all who God created. For he died for the whole world, as you know. Yet only the names of those who come, live, and abide by faith in Christ will be left. Those who do not will be blotted out. If there is no possibility to be blotted out... Why mention it and confuse the issue? If you tell your son or daughter, if you come in late tonight, whatever follows, is it hypothetical? 
I hope not. Exodus 32, 32, Revelation 22, 19, and 21, 27. Jesus will say to some, I never knew you, Matthew 7, 23. There will be some that never knew Christ. He never knew them. That's not everybody. There are those who walk away. Now, notice the third thing is the overcomer's name will be confessed before his father and before his angels. The statement is a parallel to the double negative to give assurance to the overcomer. The word confess is a strong word for confession before the courts. Philippians 2.11. We find it there. If you confess me before man, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. Matthew 10.32. If you don't, then I will not confess you. Jesus will confess that individual has trusted in the sole work of Jesus Christ for his standing justified before Jesus Christ and for being a faithful servant throughout their life. Romans 10, 9 through 10 speaks about believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. Notice the declaration is an invitation for anyone. There must be a willingness to listen and the individual, if uh, you find yourself there as such as a church or an individual, then you need to repent. There's a sense of responsibility and accountability to what is being heard. There is a sense of culpability to everyone who listens but doesn't pay heed. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Favorite words of Jesus. The Spirit is saying the same thing. Be careful how you hear, take heed, and what? How and what you hear. Very, very important. Then notice, still in 6, the declaration is an invitation to obey what the Spirit says to the churches. Here again, a cool faculty of hearing. You're not deaf. And the idea is that of hearing with a sensitive hearing and doubt to you. It is accurately and effectively that you're hearing. And therefore, the obedience is not limited to the message of the Church of Sardis, but to the seven messages that are given to all seven, which they would all receive. The word churches is in the plural, as we've noted all the time. And the Spirit is speaking to, uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, for him, the comforter, the one who brings glory to him and him alone. So this was the declaration to start us. There has to be an application. Without application, then we're fooling ourselves. If we're just here to just fill our brain with information, we are most miserable and most deceived. When you are lost in the snow, to survive, you must keep awake to stay alive. If you don't, you will die. This was started in so many in the church today. How about you? Are you sleeping? Are you where you used to be when you first came to Christ? Or have you kind of cooled off a little bit? You're walking parallel to heaven rather than on the road to heaven? Remember to depend on the Holy Spirit for your life, not mere dead mechanical ritual or dead orthodoxy. I'm glad you're here. But let me ask you, is your heart here? That's the most important thing. Remember how you have received and heard. If it doesn't match, then repent. Remember, if you do not repent, you will not walk in white. And your name will not be found in the book of life. Your name will be blotted out. 
Not all Christians believe this. Let me say it very, very clear. If I am completely wrong, what do I have to lose to warn you? Absolutely nothing. But if I'm right, you've got a heck of a lot of people think they're going to heaven. They're never going to be there. I would rather err on the side of caution. Though I believe the scriptures are very clear that you can walk away. The message to the church of Sardis is to not be deceived by her outward appearance. But rather repent. The message speaks of a local church in John's day. As the others. The message speaks of a period of church history. The Protestant Reformation. 1500 to 1750. And the message speaks of a type of church that can and will exist from Pentecost to the rapture. And for us individually, most important, as individuals, speaks of a type of individual, a type of Christian in every church age, every church generation to this church age. And so we're to examine ourselves as a church and Christians, where we're at. Are you dead or are you alive? Are you alive? Are you dying? Which is it? The one dead, not alive, needs repentance. You need to be born again. The one who's made alive and is dying, you need repentance to continue to trust Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. We thank you, we worship you, and we pray you deal with our hearts, Lord, and that we will respond to you. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Whether you're in the balcony, the floor, maybe over the internet. But the choice is yours. God will not force you to go to heaven. God will not bend your arm. God will woo you by his love and the conviction of his spirit. He'll turn on the light, but he will not make that decision force you. He will not force you. He will not force you to abide in him or stay faithful to him. That's your doing. If you're not born again, you need to repent. This is your prayer. If you want to be born again, you can ask him in your heart right now. If you're backslidden, ask him right now to come back into you. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you. As my... Lord and Savior, in Jesus' name, amen.